Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Roger Smith, PhD. He's the Chief Technology Officer at the Nicholson Center. Dr. Smith, how are you doing today? Excellent. Hmm. Well, great. Tell us about the uh, Nicholson Center. Uh, What do you do there? and What's the Nicholson Center about? So uh, we're part of the Florida hospital uh, healthcare system. And a little over 10 years ago, the hospital started building a practice in educating physicians and surgeons in new techniques, new tools uh, that were coming out for surgeons. And we started hosting um, educational events for them. And just shortly after that, the Da Vinci robot really started to take off. And the company that made it, made it the uh, Intuitive Surgical out of Silicon Valley, they chose us as one of their premier education centers. So we found ourselves um, as one of the leading centers for training robotic surgeons. And in the time between then and now, uh, it's grown to be much broader than just that one platform. But we really owe that one platform for... Uh, getting us launched and getting us to be as big as we are now. And then on the side, we also started doing research into how to effectively use the robot and to teach other people to use the the robot. So we published a lot of papers uh, in medical journals about uh, the results of research on educating and uh, usefulness of the robot. Yeah, the only robot I've heard of commercially is the Da Vinci. Is, is it the same robot system? that now does more different surgeries, or is it a different robot system with a different name that does additional surgeries? Uh, yes. Yeah. So the Da Vinci is the 800-pound uh, gorilla in this industry. They do almost a million surgeries. Uh, in 2018, they will do a, approximately a million surgeries with the Da Vinci robot. And so it's the one that almost everyone has heard about. It has evolved through four different models over the last 10 plus years. Um, so it's always been called the Da Vinci, but it just keeps getting newer and high, more high tech. Uh, there's another half a dozen robots that are out there and that have been in use for six-ish years, um, but those they get much less play. So if you work in orthopedics and your business is hip and knee surgery, you may have heard of the Mako surgical robot, or if you're in spinal surgery and a few neuro neuro procedures, uh, the the uh, Mazor robot out of Israel is rather well known there, but you have to really be in those specialties to have heard of them. They just haven't gotten the general public attention that the Da Vinci has gotten. Hmm. So, <clears throat> at the Florida, at the Nicholas Center, what robots are you using? Is it primarily just Da Vinci, or is it uh, multiple different kinds of robots? So all of them have been um, either used in our hospital, or we've been teaching classes about them at the Nicholson Center. Hmm during the, their rollout and the, their going into commercial use. Uh, currently, we're primarily teaching people how to use the Da Vinci robot, and our hospital does a lot more Da Vinci procedures than anything else. Uh, we also we still do use the uh, Mazor spinal robot, and we've just started using the transenteric Senhans, which was approved by the FDA at the beginning of the year, and we were the first ones to adopt it and start uh, using it in practice. 
So what are some of the benefits of using robots for surgery, like the Da Vinci? So if you're really good at designing your surgical department, uh, you can redesign the way patients flow and the way your staff sets up the patients and the robot so that you get more patient throughput per day for Da Vinci procedures than you would if you were doing them in the more traditional laparoscopic uh, method. And we've been doing that for about 10 years now with uh, prostatectomies. We've really customized the way we deliver prostatectomies to elderly men so that one surgeon is able to do eight to 10 prostatectomies in a single working day. And that number is just unheard of by any other method. Um, typically, a urologist uh, doing it without the robot might do two in a day. And in other institutions, somebody doing it with a robot might be able to do four. Um, but we've done a lot of work to get our efficiencies and, and just make it like a well-oiled machine so that we keep doing eight or 10 in a day. Well, how could you be that much more efficient? What What is it about uh, using the robots that does that? Does it just reduce like scrub in, scrub out time? Or, you know, what is it that, so the, that does it? The first thing, you know, you know, most of the improvements come from the one or two big changes you, you make, and then the rest come from smaller changes. So the mm -hmm. biggest change that we made was we built two side-by-side -side operating rooms, each one with its own dedicated Da Vinci robot in it, and then we created a dedicated OR team that that could operate in, we'll call it operating room A and the other one in operating room B. And so while the surgeon is doing a procedure on the first patient of the day, they're already prepping the second patient of the day in the room next door. And so when he or she finishes the procedure on the first patient, they stand up and walk across the, the hallway to the second OR and sit down and do the procedure again right there. And so you have two teams prepping the patient and then also uh, finishing up the patient while the doctor's working on the, the other, in the other operating room. So it becomes okay. very quick for him. And he's, he's, it's essentially one surgeon, but two OR teams working together to, to move that fast. Let's, yeah, I, didn't, I don't know this, but in traditional uh, surgery environments, what's the bottleneck? The number of capable surgeons? Or the it, it could be because capable surgeons are expensive surgeons, so it's more common to have just one. Um, but if you didn't do that two operating room thing that we, I just described, uh, during the whole time when the patient is being prepared for the procedure, there's nothing for the surgeon to do. Uh, so they can step aside and do paperwork or anything, other work that is valuable, um, but they can't be um, doing procedures. And we realized that by putting two rooms side by side and, and letting him go back and forth between the two, that he could spend most of his day actually actively participating in a surgery. And so that's how he's able to get about twice as many as anybody else. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, yeah. So here I tell you this secret of our OR and you would think that uh, other hospitals would jump on that and catch up with us, redesign their processes and catch up with us. And we're not the only ones who know this, quote, secret, uh, but we seem to be one of the few who are able to actually implement it in a large hospital system. So we can't explain why the other hospitals don't do exactly the same thing, but most of them don't. Hmm. Well, what do they do? What, what common uh, mistakes do you see them make or lack of adoption of what you do? Like. Did, you know, have you consulted with other hospitals and they resist what you're saying for some reason, or uh, 
they see the evidence, they say, oh, it makes sense, and they just don't do it. What are you experiencing? It's difficult to make it happen in a complex healthcare system. So in a healthcare system, there are a lot of moving parts. And so doing what I just described requires changing the way a lot of parts, not just one or two parts, um, work. And you you have the uh, clinical staff who's supporting the, the surgeon and to make our system work, we have to have the same clinical staff come to work with the same surgeon every day and almost um, take their vacations when he takes his vacation. And you, you really can't do that kind of thing in hospitals with strong labor unions and any, any, any uh, leverage to object to that kind of synchronization between the staff and the surgeon. Um, and then also hmm. there's just the scheduling of the ORs. Um, the ORs are shared grounds for all surgeons. So getting two ORs that are dedicated to one surgeon or, in our case, four operating days per week um, is not necessarily possible in some hospital systems. They just can't tell all the other surgeons, you can't have these rooms four days a week. You have to use the, the rest of the ORs. Well, how do the surgeons react that are on this, uh, you know, one right after another schedule? I would think that, you know, they would fatigue unless it's a short operation. They would need to take breaks. But maybe this allows you to chunk the uh, the surgery so they have bigger breaks and more frequent ones. So that that is definitely the fatigue factor is definitely uh, a realistic thing there. It, that kind of lifestyle or, or working lifestyle is not for everybody. And you're right, some people will transfer out because they don't want that. It's very rhythmic. And so once you're in the rhythm and once you understand how everything is, goes, I think the stress level is lower because you know exactly what's happening because it's going to happen again and again and again uh, today, and then it's going to happen almost the same tomorrow. And for some people, that's an ideal way to work, and they prefer it. And if they can get on that team, they stay on that team. So I think it's just a what kind of person do you have uh, in, in your clinical team? Well, if you compare a surgeon that's, you know, does eight prostate surgeries in a day versus one that does, you know, two or an exceptional one like you said that does four, how yeah. many hours is each surgeon working and how much break time is there? And maybe it more right. clearly delineates what is break time and what is uh, work time. Maybe it's even less fatiguing. I don't know if it was uh, structured properly. That's true. Even what I described is true for the surgeon. It's, he knows, in this case, it is a male, so he knows uh, what to expect today, and today goes pretty smoothly, and tomorrow is going to be a repeat, roughly, of today. So as long as that works for him, I think he does have uh, a very busy day, but a very predictable day, one that's easy to emotionally manage. Hmm. Gotcha. What about uh, base benefits to the patient's? You know, why use robots so extensively? What What is it about it that's better than maybe a surgeon by hand? So we'll start answering that with the, uh, the cases that I was just describing with our prostatectomies. The best thing for the patient in that case is they have a surgeon operating on them that literally has done the most procedures of anybody in the world. So uh, the number of successful procedures that a surgeon has done in the past is... Uh, very good indicator of how successful your outcomes will be. And so they know they're sitting down with essentially the Babe Ruth of prostatectomies. Um, and so their outcome is going to be about as good as it can get anywhere in the world. So that's the a big benefit for 
them going into the system that I just described where it's very, um, it's not quick in order to be fast for its own sake. Um, it's quick in order to be efficient so that you just don't have the team or the surgeon sitting around doing nothing for big parts of the day. Well, you know, the machine may have done a million surgeries, but the person controlling the machine may not have. And, you know, it's not right. the, and we're not at the point yet where the machine runs on its own, right? So, I mean, it's, I don't know, is it accurate to say that, you know, it's the Babe Ruth of, uh, of surgery because there's different people that operate it, you know? Like, if I operated it with no training, it would be terrible. I have That's no training. right. That's right. That's right. The, sur- the robot itself, it doesn't do anything on its own. Um, it's completely controlled by uh, the human surgeon. And so it's that, that person's level of skill that determines the outcome for the patient. Uh, the robot's a useful tool, so it's great. Just like you want a sharp knife if you're going to be a cook, um, and that'll give you better results than if you have a dull knife, um, it's still up to the, the cook to be able to use it effectively. Right. Well, what are some of the things that, you know, how are the patient outcomes better with a dementia? Do you have, uh, you know, straighter incisions that heal faster or, you know, you're able to do smaller incisions or, you know, what are some of the specifics that make the DaVinci superior to maybe a surgeon doing it by hand? Right, right. So typically we divide surgical technique into three different categories. Um, One is open surgery, uh, which is the way your father and my father probably had their surgeries done where the surgeon cuts, um, cuts an opening large enough to get several instruments and some portion of their hands uh, into the body cavity. And then there's laparoscopic surgery or keyhole surgery, which emerged in the 1980s and really took off because of the um, reduction in the amount of cutting and blood loss and scar tissue and uh, cutting of nerves that had to be done to get the smaller instruments and the camera to slide into your stomach or into your abdominal area. So that took off then. And then what we call robotic surgery today is really just robotic-assisted laparoscopic surgery. So the way the instruments get in is still the same. It's just that you, instead of you having to control them with your manual hands from the outside, uh, the robot is holding it and can control them more precisely than you would with your own hands. Mm. So th- those are the three approaches. And the outcomes between open surgery and both forms of laparoscopic surgery are significantly different. Um, laparoscopy, either manual or done with the robot, when done well, is extremely better for the patient, uh, less damaging to their body allows them to go home much sooner because they lose less blood. They have smaller cuts through muscle and nerves, uh, just a smaller incision to heal up. So everything's much better for them if it's done in one of those two methods. Now, if you compare... Okay. Yeah, go ahead. If you compare that to uh, robotic surgery. Yeah, if you compare well-done laparoscopic procedures to well-done robotic procedures, you have roughly the same outcome the patients are experiencing roughly the same incisions, the same blood loss, the same cutting of nerves, uh, the same instrument trajectory through their body as you move organs aside or whatever you're doing to get to the surgical site. So they experience roughly the same thing or same quality of of surgery. Hmm. Okay. Um, There are certain surgeries that, you know, the Da Vinci, for instance, is like, you know, much, much better at and certain ones where, it's really a toss-up between uh, 
you know, a human hand and, and the robot itself? Like which ones, which surgeries does it particularly shine in? So the two that da Vinci has really built their reputation on have been uh, prostatectomies for w- men and hysterectomies for women. When you do a prostatectomy, the instruments enter the body up in the abdominal area, but then you slant downward into the pelvic area of the patient to where the prostate is. And it's a long path from where you enter to where the prostate is. Controlling the instruments as you get further and further into the body manually is more challenging than if you have the robot holding them from the outside of the body. And so you get more stable movements. Uh, you have less tremors or uh, trembling of the hands. That, that doesn't occur in the robot. You have less tremors of the instrument tips. Uh, you can get better visualization, especially because the camera that's going along with the instruments in the Da Vinci robot, it's a stereoscopic camera. So there are two lenses that are bringing out two images, one for each eye. And the surgeon who's looking at the display is seeing everything in 3D. Uh, whereas if you do the same thing with laparoscopic surgery, most of those systems are a single camera and you're seeing everything in 2D. Okay, so that makes sense. Yeah, so you just you you are able to get you maintain better control as you go deeper into the body to get to uh, the prostate. What about uh, surgeons that may have a tremor? You know, maybe someone is a great surgeon, but you know they've been doing it for 20 years and they're just getting older and they they can't help it. They have a little bit of a tremor in their hand or they just they can't hold their hands as still. Does the Da Vinci keep surgeons experienced ones working longer? Does it save them from carpal tunnel themselves or whatever they experience doing surgeries for years? So it it saves them from two of these aging effects. So one of them is what you just said is increasing tremor in your hand. The robot can tell the difference between the slight trembling of a person's hands because they're aging or because they just have had too much caffeine for whatever reason. It can tell the difference between that and intentional movement. And so it filters out or does not transfer the trembling movements down to the instrument tips. So even though you're trembling, the instrument tips are sitting rock solid still and only moving when you're intentionally moving them. And yes, that does help surgeons continue to be proficient as their hands lose some of that nervous control and, and pick up a slight tremor. And yes, doctors say that I, if what you're hearing right now is retired doctors say, if I had come to my older age when the Da Vinci was available, I wouldn't have had to retire so soon. But I had to retire mm-hmm. because I just wasn't able to hold steady when I was doing surgery. The second thing that you hear doctors saying is that the, the second thing you hear doctors saying is that sometime in their career, because of the way they bend over the operating room table, they develop musculoskeletal injuries in their neck and back. And sometimes that results in them losing feeling in their fingertips. And in traditional surgery, they've had to stop operating because they can't feel um, what they're doing. And with the Da Vinci, again, they say, if the Da Vinci had been around when this happened to me, I wouldn't have had to retire. I would have been able to keep operating. Oh, wow. How old are surgeons typically when they retire? Do they last, you know, into their 60s or is it a young profession where where people uh, usually can't do it after their 40s, for instance? No, usually into their 60s, even into their 70s if their health is really good. Uh, We know lots of surgeons that are still very active in their 60s and a few into their 70s. Um, I don't have the demographics universally, but certainly there are many uh, in their 60s still operating. 
your surgical career starts in most active about when you turn age 30, because that's how long it takes to get through medical school and residency and perhaps a fellowship and then get your uh, your full uh, attending status started. It usually happens about when you're 30. So you operate through mm. your 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. Okay. Well, very good. Um, so what do you see as uh, the newest technology that's coming? What advances and improvements to the robots are you seeing that you'll, you may see in your hospital system in the next few years? It was the latest and greatest that's coming. Yeah, so what you're seeing now, the, the technology behind the Da Vinci has been out in the public domain. Right, that's not the right way to say that. The technology in the Da Vinci has been out in practical use in the healthcare industry for almost 20 years now. And you're starting to see a dozen or more companies coming into the surgical robotic space now because the materials and the machinery are all becoming better. The machinery is getting smaller. The materials are getting more rigid and still remaining light. Um, the electronics are getting better and more refined. And so they're able to create robots that assist surgeons in ways that previously weren't really practical. Um, there are some companies that are developing robots that compete directly with the Da Vinci, and they're trying to do what Da Vinci does, but their robot is smaller or lighter or less expensive, or it incorporates um, better visual displays, something you know that just gives them an edge. Um, you're starting to see several companies come to market trying to compete directly with Da Vinci. And then you're seeing mm. others that are taking advantage of technology that does things like um, use motorized pieces to drive a catheter up the leg and into the heart so that you can perhaps place a stent or something. And it wasn't that surgeons couldn't do that manually. It's just that when they did it, they were usually firing X-ray energy so they could see where the tip of the instrument was, and they were standing right in that X-ray field every day hey, really? over and over again for decades. Right. And so they and their team, in spite of the lead vests and the thyroid protectors they're wearing, they're exposed to a lot of radiation. And that leads to early onset of cancer. So these newer robots um, stand at the bedside in the energy field and push that catheter while the surgeon stands behind leaded glass with the electronic controls that are driving the tip of that instrument. So that's a typical angle that's come out now in about three or four different robots in the last few years. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. Huh. Yeah. I didn't realize surgeons, uh, you know, put themselves in, in front of all these hazards just to work on people. They do. It's a, it's a cost that they count as when they first choose their specialty. And you would think that being surgeons, that they are very well informed on what they're getting themselves into. We hope they do. But, yeah, they decide that they're going to go that way and uh, use a treatment that requires x-ray or not. And, yeah, they suffer some, some of the consequences of that. Yeah. Well, again, any big breakthroughs uh, you see coming in the next few years? Yeah, so one big, breakthrough, one big breakthrough that two companies are beginning to make waves about and promise for the future uh, comes from artificial intelligence. So currently, there aren't any robots that use AI to help with surgery. But Intuitive Surgical, who makes the Da Vinci, and a company called Verb Surgical, which is a partnership between Johnson & Johnson and Google, um, they're both 
suggesting that their next generation of robots will be connected to a cloud server full of data um, that's using AI to recognize what the surgeon is doing and provide advice and guidance as they do it. So imagine that you're moving in with your instruments and the AI, which has processed 10,000 procedures exactly like the one you're doing right now and knows the anatomy of the body, could put up a, a little grade wall that says, don't go over here. There's a nerve under this tissue that you don't want to cut. Or don't proceed this way because there's a large um, artery over here. And if you cut it, it's going to be disastrous. Um, mm. Or because they've seen 10,000 surgeries that were successful, it puts a little arrow guide that says you might want to proceed along this path into the body because that's been the most successful of all the previous cases that were analyzed by the software. So both of them are suggesting that they're going to be able to assist surgeons um, with the next generation of robots coupled to um, AI. Mm. That's really exciting. And so far, of all the robotic companies out there, only two of those two have said that that's what they're shooting for. What about, um, you know, the, like, for instance, the Da Vinci is controlled by a person completely. Mm -hmm. Do you think we'll get to a point where the robot will be able to uh, operate autonomously, at least for a bit? Maybe to make an incision itself or to, you know, to do various uh, tasks within the surgery? So, yeah, you're reaching out a couple of decades probably. Um, really? There is, a, yeah, there is an experimental project which started, um, I think it started at the University of Buffalo. I'm not positive that's true. But essentially they created a robotic piece that could do, um, that could suture two pieces of, tissue together and do it very accurately, more accurately than a human. Now, you had to get the uh, system to hold the tissue exactly in a specific way and get the, um, the camera to look at it in exactly the right angle. So it wasn't freeform in the sense that most surgery is in which that, that vessel or those two pieces of tissue that you're trying to sew together might be laying in the body in any configuration. It was very controlled. And then they had the, the robot suture the tissue back together and do it better than or more precisely, you know, machine better perfectly uh, than humans were doing. So there's people mm. hoping that that will become a small piece of automation that you could, uh, the surgeon could be doing a procedure, uh, get all the tissue lined up and hold it and then speak a command and the robot would do that suturing um, without the surgeon actually doing it themselves. Okay, very interesting. Why why decades? What's you know I I know we can't go into it too deeply, but what are what's like some of the most difficult hurdles that would allow a robot to operate autonomously? Where are they falling down where they can't do you know even simple stuff? So the biggest hurdle is that the human body, everybody's body is slightly different, and all all the things that make up most of our body. We've been talking about soft tissue for most of this discussion is very flexible and fluid and moves around. That's completely different than the way um, car parts are assembled on an assembly line by robots or that boxes are picked up you know, and put into shipping containers by FedEx and Amazon. That's completely different from all of those products. So there, there aren't sufficient pieces of the robotic solution around to recognize all of the tissue that's moving around and falling in the wrong place inside the human body, and then know how to 
get your hands on it and work with it um, without crushing it. Yeah, there's a big one. Without crushing it, which is still a challenge, picking up things like eggs or boxes. Um, just the, the robotic capabilities to, to work with that soft tissue haven't been created yet. Hmm. Okay. And you think it'll take decades to get there, or it's not a short-term thing, it sounds like? Yeah, I think it'll take decades to get there. Healthcare oh. is very conservative. Um, we, we tend to not rush into changes. And so things that you see happen in manufacturing or in warehouses, uh, we don't experiment with it in healthcare. We wait until it, we're almost positive it's going to work before we start to develop it. So, yeah, I think it'll take decades before that kind of thing is available. Wow. I didn't realize that. All right. Well, what's the um, the best way for interested uh, people that work in, you know, their own hospital or in the healthcare system to get in contact and to see if, you know, you could do a training for them on how to, uh, you know, increase the uh, the capacity of their operating rooms, you know, mm-hmm. if they could do what you, you're doing. What's the best way well, for them to get in touch? A good place to start is at NicholsonCenter.com. And uh, there you'll find ways to contact us and ask specific questions like you just described, like, I want to know how to do this better. I want to know how to use the Da Vinci robot, or I want to learn more about the Senhance robot, which has only been out a year and almost nobody knows about it. Um, that'd be the uh, the best place to start. Hmm. Okay. Well, very good. Well, I appreciate you, Dr. Smith, coming on the podcast. All right. You're welcome. It was great talking with you. You've been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.